was born a year after the Cuban Missile Crisis, into what I thought was a pretty optimistic decade. I went to school, and I learned about Jesus, and some kings and queens of England, and the Industrial Revolution. I didn't learn anything about the American Civil Rights Movement, or the Empire Windrush. My eyes were gradually opened to the realities and the long legacy of transatlantic slavery, by reggae lyrics, and then by poets like Mikey Smith and Linton Kwesi Johnson. And because I loved reggae music, still do, I kept listening and reading. So it was poetry and song lyrics that introduced me to a history education I would never otherwise have had. Welcome to another conversation about how art can help human beings feel better and maybe even do better. I'm Frances Butt. When I read my guest Dr Edson Burton's wonderful poetry collection, Seasoned, with its astonishing range of voices, stories and perspectives, I really wanted to ask him about his writing and what drives him. I wasn't at all sure what would be the best questions to ask, but he's so knowledgeable I knew he'd help me out with that, and so it proved. Edson is a poet, playwright, curator, TV and radio commentator, compare and also an academic, an historian specialising in black history, the slave trade, and our home city of Bristol. Dr Burton, thank you for giving me your time today. How are you doing? Doing fine. Sun's out, and uh, who knows, we're either on the cusp of being liberated or maybe a little bit postponed from the liberation that comes post-pandemic. Oh, lordy, lordy, lordy. Are we post-pandemic? Yeah, we're trying to be post-pandemic. Yeah. We're on the way. We're on the way. But I think with the sun shining, it makes all the difference. It makes a massive difference. Yeah. Did you uh, Did you get your outdoor exercise moves on this morning? I am going to do that later on. So okay. after this interview, I am literally donning the lycra. Straight to your press-ups, lunges and Hindu burpees. Yes, right. You saw... <laughs> <laughs> For the listener, Edson is a gentleman of exemplary fitness. But shall we um, begin to talk about poetry and plays and words and such? When did you start? Sorry, <laughs> the fun's over now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. When did you start writing and working with words, Edson? Oh, um, for almost, I could say, as long as I remember. But I remember when I was at middle school, we have a mm-hmm. middle school system in my hometown of Bedford mm-hmm. that I was writing uh, sort of hero based comics oh. and I moved yeah it was all Marvel based characters sort of rip-offs really I called them the surfer but it was our creation and I say our myself and illustrator Abid Subble who's my close friend mm. and uh, so we were making up characters and writing uh, reams and reams of notebooks filled adventures of our characters and then I started to write poetry a little bit more seriously when I got into secondary school. Right. Right then, I think my reading had changed a lot then. I sort of moved on from hero comics to sort of pulp fictions, Conan the Barbarian and Edge the Western. There's this kind of gruesome, nasty revenge story westerns, Adam Steele, that sort of stuff. Um, And then I think it was all quiet on the Western front. Okay. Oh, and looking for Mr. Goodbar. And they were... And after reading those two books, I 
I, I couldn't return to the pulps. Yeah, right. And also my writing changed and I, I saw a different role for poetry in particular. Okay, right. So you, you weren't introduced to certain works by teachers or did you have any influential teachers? Good I, I did actually. So I should say that within with my writing creatively at middle school, mm. I had a teacher called Mr Lind who was amazingly supportive and used to mm. look at some of my notebooks and sort of the exuberance of imagination and think there was something there. Uh, I suspect he was hoping that I would soon be over this pulp phase. But then at secondary school, mm. I had a teacher called Mr. Leach, who was a, he had left Southern Africa because uh, he was an activist. So I didn't know that much about his activism at the time, but since speaking to school friends who kept in touch with, you know, all contacts, he was quite involved in anti-apartheid movements. Right. But he really liked my work encouraged me personally outside of class so I fell in love with Arthur Miller's The Crucible that's a standout oh. text for me I mean sort of Shakespeare work Hamlet yeah. um Mahmoud Jamal was probably the first poem I read by a black author in a text describing blackness and the experience of that let my right. love be black is a line that leaps out at me mm. massively encouraged by Mr Leach who as I said took his time in the days that teachers had spare time and, and yeah. space to look over my writing mm -hmm. and encouraged me. And then a bereavement in the family, mm -hmm. um, the loss of my of a niece mm. after one year. Yeah, she was alive for one year, but her lungs had been damaged when she was born. So, mm. And I wrote the poem about that. And I guess in a sense, that was probably the first time that I thought about poetry as a as a tool of compassion, empathy, solidarity in that way. Right. I mean, I'd written poetry beforehand um, around family members and mm. I suppose what I call personal poetry. Mm. But this felt like um, this was an act of love for my brother and my sister-in-law. Right, oh, incredible. And that changed my, yeah, my, my thoughts around poetry and what it could be for. Absolutely, because, that, well, that's very personal. And then there's the broad, the history, the, you know, the whole of humanity, the stories of peoples, and that they're, they're not um, distinguishable, are they really? And I think, yeah. and certainly in your collection Seasoned, you go between the two very much very, very personal stories, and then you're going to this whole breadth of history and you refer references to the classics and Shakespeare too there. And yeah. it's all bound up, isn't it? It's very dense poetry, isn't it? It's very condensed and these carefully chosen words and phrases that really pack a punch and really hit you in the gut sort of thing. Who are your favourite poets? Or do you, are you good with all poetry, by the way? Because I struggle with some. Um, I, uh, <laughs> I, um, yes, I am. I guess I, I, I have time for esoteric poetry if I think it's an honest journey. Mm. If it's bringing a layer and a complexity that is integral to the telling of that poem. Mm. I guess what I'm not a fan of is difficulty for difficulty's sake. Right. But, you know, and I, but I, I tend to encounter that less with poetry than I do with literary criticism. And I do remember some incredibly difficult texts when I was studying, especially at SOAS, and get to the end of it and you think, right, okay, so <laughs> that could have been said a lot simpler. <laughs> right. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, my first introduction to poetry at school was, you know, Keats, and I loved mm. Ode to a Nightingale. Mm. Much later on, um, oh gosh, I mentioned Mahmoud Jamal, but Grace mm. Nichols was a, is one oh, of my favourite yeah. poems. Yeah. I mean, I do enjoy the work of Kate Tempest as well. Mm -hmm. um, oh gosh, Robert Lowell. 
Oh, Robert yes. Lowell. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Sorry. And Sylvia Plath. Oh, yeah. yeah. Sylvia Plath and Robert Lowell. Absolutely. Yeah. I guess in a sense, I realised I was quite drawn to visceral poets, uh, poets who I felt were dealing with the sharp end of experience Yeah. and finding that selection of words. I mean, there's such a power to Sylvia Plath's writing, the moon mm. and the yew tree, yeah. for example. But it's accessible, what she Yeah. Wrote. It's brilliant. In its yeah. accessibility as well as yeah. that punch. And it must be hard work. It's got to be hard work, right, to get that right. And it looks like it's the easiest thing to find a few words and say something simple and powerful. But my God, it must be hard work. I mean, John Cooper Clark talks about it being really hard work. It's being sheer hard work. And I've read somewhere that you find it exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> I can believe it is. Uh, harder than plays, I, t- I would guess. Yes. I mean, because poetry is my first medium. Mm. I've always had a care for a musical line or, oh. or a succinctness of statement. Um, and, and I try and do that in my theatre writing. Mm. Although, of course, sometimes you have to compromise that if you feel it's not the voice of a character. Yeah. In that instance, it's more around, um, like Alan Bennett does it very well. Mm. Um, it's the poetry of ordinary voices. Yeah. It's that way of formulating phrases and sentences that are poetic but yeah. they feel authentic to the mouth of a character who yeah. might not have had a postgraduate you know, education. Right, so every character has different music in their voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, yeah. and it's finding that, you know. And part of that, actually, is for me also growing up with some of my father's curses were so lyrical. Oh, how wonderful. You know, oh, you're going to have to give us a few now. Oh, I can't. They're too rude. Oh, really? Oh, dear. Oh, yeah. tantalising. But how he would string them together. <laughs> I remember once he was having a go at me about something, and I stopped in amazement and said, Dad, can you just say that again? Because it was, <laughs> it was alliteration, assonance going on. It's, all this. it's beautiful. Yeah, I was like, oh, my gosh, that's perfect. <laughs> Not the effect he was looking for. But, but I, I guess... The thing I discovered about theatre and dramatic writing is, Mm. you know, engineering of plot and story is Mm. paramount. With poetry, it's the leanness of the words and the choice of words is all you have. And of course, structuring them so that the poem lands in a way. But actually, what I enjoy about poetry and the difficulty is, is to find this alchemy between meaning, music, and one's sort of philosophy and, and soul. Yeah. And there are times when you think you've, there is that temptation of when is a poem complete and you're sort of three quarters there. Right. But actually there's just that last verse isn't, it's not real. You're just trying to complete the poem and oh. the words don't, they don't fit. They're not quite precise or they don't sound right. So sometimes mm. it's mm. they might sound right, but they they don't really carry a precision of meaning. Mm. And precision of meaning, I guess being precise about what one means is something that's always haunted me in different kinds of writing. But in mm. poetry, you have the possibility of getting closer to that because of its economy. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Do some poems just come easily, you know, and just seem to just all be there and you race through and there it all is on the paper? Yep, some do. And also, I have to say that I've given myself permission. And I think a lot of my writing life is about different phases in which I've given myself permission to write differently and to think of different styles, more immediate styles, more spoken word styles. Mm. Where, in a sense, the playfulness of it means that the overall effect, the use of repetitions and so on, might make the poetry easier to conjure. Mm. Um, 
it may also mean that it's accessible. But what I still try to do is that the overall meaning of that poem is something that I stand by. Yes. And those sort of poems, you know, which are meant to be accessible and performative, I find do come quite easily. And dare I say it, that I had to rid myself of the notion that poetry needed to be difficult, needed to have many, many layers. Yeah. And there are poems that I write which are quite dense and they're meant to be dense. And there's others which are, as I say, much more immediate and playful. Mm. So a poem like um, Dog Lover. Me have a dog, me no keep on a leash. Me have a dog, me no keep on a leash. Me have a dog, I don't have no teeth. Me and me dog is giant in matrimony. When me they arrest, me dog sleep on me chest. Me dog belly full but it always hungry. Me and me dog, yam pure pedigree. Man love me dog, but I'm not enough it touchy. You not see me dog if you not vex me. But if you mix up in my business, me dog open up chest cavity. What the Three, two, one, back in the room. <laughs> oh, my God, bloody hell. I don't like wearing him very much. That's great. Yeah, he's, he's not a very nice person, this fella. He's one of these guys that when I was growing up, and you'd go to a party and you go, oh, he's the stabby guy. Oh, this, oh, nice. Ooh. You know, he's the one who's sort of looking for someone to step in his shoes. So stand, stand, yeah. If you're like standing in the middle of the dance floor, like step on my foot. Oh, yeah. Step on yeah, my yeah, foot. Go on. Yeah. If you think you're bad, step on my foot. Yeah. And you're like, um, but you're kind of putting your foot out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. they're just like, thing? you know, it's just the power of fear, being feared. Yeah. Yeah. Being yeah. feared, isn't it? Yeah, so that came pretty quickly once I had the concept of the idea mm. emerged and then it was just wrestling with some of the choice of images and words and when it's really like, actually, it doesn't need another line. There's a point sometimes when a poem's gone cold. Oh. So, you know, <laughs> it's written in a, in a, with a certain energy and then I find if I've waited too long to, to try and complete it or... Mm edit it it feels a bit like I'm maybe it's not that it's gone cold but that it's it is finished and returning to it later on you sort of realize you're trying to shoehorn something in right and had that sentiment arisen at the point that you were first composing the poem it might have been able to find a space Oh, that's interesting. But whereas it's a bit like sort of trying to exhume something yeah. when the spirit has flown, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let it rest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess once it's there, once it's done, once it's out there, what's what's down yeah. has a life of its own in a way that is beyond your control almost. Certainly once it's in a book out there that people are reading, that's definitely beyond your control now yeah. and has a life of its own outside of you. It's also that when it lands on others, you get to see... Sometimes you get to see elements of your own subconscious that you weren't aware you were revealing. Oh, and I think, oh, right. <laughs> Who is that? And so there's an idea that you think it's about someone else. And oh, then reading this poem back, you go, oh, my gosh, that's me. Oh, but I've just described a really unlovely person. Oh, you know, like, oh. Uh, uh, um, sure not. <laughs> uh, we, all have, we all have our moments. I don't oh, know. We certainly do. 
<laughs> on the other hand, also when it lands in an audience, it's what people pick up lines that have resonance for yeah. them, an image that has a resonance for yeah. them. And those aren't the things that maybe the emotional stresses that one thinks people will land on or, or, yeah. or the main stress that one has in mind. Which is lovely in a way. Yeah. It's got uh, it's got more gifts than you knew it had in it. Yeah, way. yeah. Do you think? Do you do you ever write with the intention of affecting hearts and minds? Yes, I do. I suppose. I mean, it's interesting that there's been a sort of mantra that's built up in society in the last few years mm. around not wanting to. I don't want to talk to white people about race or I don't want to talk to mm-hmm. people about such and such, the emotional labor. Right. I, I think it's very difficult for all of us to understand the subject position of each other. Mm. And also we have multiple loyalties, responsibilities, preoccupations, you know, people are carers, yeah. they're, yeah. they're lovers, so all these things pull. And in a sense, while we might think that people should be concerned with our perspective and social justice in that sense, yeah. I, I think in reality that, you know, good people are pulled elsewhere. I'm, you know, my energy goes into some issues and concerns and I listen to Radio 4 and think, yeah. oh, it's terrible what's happening there. Yeah. But then after that, I get up and go about my day. Yeah. So I, I think in a sense that element of talking to the, the power of poetry is to like a, a a song that grabs your attention unexpectedly yeah it is to kind of force the attention yeah and so yes i think i i do sometimes think but i, I hope not cynically and it's i hope not cynically i never sort of contrive emotion and but what i try and do is write from an honest space and a human space so that whatever the audience and I say whatever the audience, because there's an interesting quote by Toni Morrison that I don't write for white people. Uh-huh, okay. But ironically, I think that could be misunderstood in the sense of I don't care for white readers. I think actually the best way that people care about writing is to write from a place of honesty, integrity and authenticity about totally. your subject. That, that's a human thing. You know, that's not, that's yeah. not a racially distinct thing. Yeah. So helping people to recognise things that are the same about us as well as accept one another's differences, Mm. I would hope. But I hope, do you think literary and dramatic and visual and musical arts can bring hope and progress to these long ongoing struggles in increased tolerance and acceptance and empathy? I mean, you mentioned empathy right from the get-go and even, dare I say, love, you know, because we all want to be accepted as we are. We all want to be heard. But is it art that helps us develop that capacity to listen as well as to speak i think art um so i I wrote about this for the west national opera in Mm. a piece uh, an essay recently and um my sense is that art is more than most things i guess we we have lived experience and then also socially we are fragmented I was thinking the other day about what is the impact of deindustrialization. You think around crisis of masculinity and so forth and mm, all that. Mm. But actually, it's also the atomization of social experience. It's where do we have collective experience of each other? Yeah. My father worked in a factory. Mm. My mother briefly worked at a motorway station. And in that factory environment, motorway station, 
you have working class black women, working class white women, Asian women. Yeah. It, it's it's not a sort of a theory of race. People mm-hmm. just start to rub up against each other and yeah. realize their commonalities yeah. in an imperfect way. Yeah. When those spaces are gone, those spaces of shared experience begin to fracture. We don't yes. get those opportunities other than very fleeting moments on dance floors or in a, yeah. at a theatre or passing through or the odd friend. We don't get that um, granular yeah. experience of each yeah. other. So poetry, in that, especially in our context, helps us, uh, and, and writing generally, helps us to imagine, posit, build empathy for others. Mm. And we are, you know, there are many kinds of others and others to each other, but in that plural sense, it it helps the journey. I guess in a sense, that's all it can do is be a sort of a starting point. The problem I think then is there's a lot of sort of anxiety about what's the role of art and how can we do more and so on. I actually think that maybe the issues are that we, if the structures in society are fundamentally still the same, then, you know, art can lead a horse to water. But it's those structures which imprison us in the same ways of acting. So you you might watch a Netflix documentary about the criminal justice system and so on, and it might mean that you tick a particular box or do something else. Mm. But there needs to be that empathy translated into another kind of context. So that um, can lead to change, but it's that other context that that's necessary. And, And writing isn't hopefully so polemical that it's seen as just a tool of activism. But I, I guess in a way it's a soft power. It's a it's a point which may be the, the reason why when you interrogate people's experience, why are you here on a on a Black Lives Matter march? Why are mm. you here as a mm. cis male on a mm. women's reclaim the night march? Yeah. And you say, well actually I read this book. Mm-hmm. Or actually Absolutely. I watched this film. Yeah. And this kind of vital transformative role of art yes I, I think is incredibly active and, and creates change and how it activates people and moves them it's hard to know mm. but certainly when I think of friends who are activists and so on sort of a, 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 across the board in different ways mm. um, their creative interest and in all the things that they consume have been part of their DNA at some point in their lives mm. Mm. yeah then you're moved to write something and because it's from your heart it moves others and I think that's probably basically it yeah um, which of your pieces would you say you're the most pleased with or most proud of oh mm. oh. <laughs> oh sorry you're <laughs> as good as your last play um, <laughs> it's it's it is a difficult one um I think of my poems a poem that expresses a great deal for me is a poem called come but it's quite a bleak poem which deals with um so the whole collection, as you know, Francis, is, is mm. built around this collective and um, individual experience and seeing mm. the relationship between them both. And there's a mm. poem called Come in the collection, which I think sort of sums up what I was trying to say, the, the impact of uh, generational oppression and, and the demons and the, the, the legacies of slavery that kind mm. of manifest themselves in a family. Mm. But then also a kind of a, a solution or a reconciliation with those things, a consciousness of their impact, a self-reflectiveness posited in which one can then enter a new space. So that poem, I think, for me, conveys 
as much as I've tried to convey in the past. Um, I recently also wrote a poem called We Are Dust, mm. which again, like, um, we are from dust. And that was a commission for Art Space, Life Space, which will be part of the exhibition Sculpture Trail, sorry, that's up there. We'll be up there. Brilliant. And also a piece I did for Situations. And those were just great wide-ranging opportunities to write something quite big about Earth and cosmos and Mm. relationship between life in its different ways. And (laughs) the irony is that um, sometimes, you know, I, I look at my life as part of a dialectic of losing race. And I'm not going to see... Really? The end of that. Yeah. Because I guess, in a sense, we inhabit a time in which we are trying to decolonize a moment in history where people were racialized and uh, categorized in various kinds of ways. And yeah. those taxonomies still exist. And yeah. we are in the, perhaps in the later stages of a process and a painful process of decoupling that well mm-hmm. we're at some point along that journey let's mm-hmm. say but we're certainly further on than we were in the earlier part of the last century mm-hmm. but my life will not reach to a point where you and i look at each other well hopefully you and i do but then society generally yeah. looks at each other as canvases blank canvases of human possibility Right. And it's that thing where there is so much baggage loaded by gender and race mm-hmm. that the eye doesn't see. Mm. It has a set of assumptions, preoccupations and ideas that, in a sense, load every encounter. Yeah. And at some point in human history, I think maybe that canvas will change. We'd like to think that there won't be a canvas. There will just be a fresh human encounter. Right, yeah. I think this is the point I was trying to make about what poetry can do as yeah. speaking characters, speaking stories, yeah. people stories mm. that you're looking into the heart of. Um, yeah. Yeah, so um, I guess I'm very proud of the Deacon series, which is a... Oh, yes, now. People yeah. can find that still on BBC Sounds. I'll, I'll re- reiterate after we finish talking yeah. about where they can find that. Um, any other projects coming up that you're excited about? <laughs> what can I mention safely? Yeah. I'm working. <laughs> well, I'm working on a, a, a couple of ideas for screen. One, one of them is an animation. Ooh. Early stages, working towards a new collection. I've had a revelation with the theatre play that I've been revelation around the story plot and uh, why this will work. So I'm going to get to writing on that. So the last Blue Song of the Last Afronaut is a project which I began in 2016-2017, which imagines a colony from Earth finding another planet, terraforming that planet, creating a whole new civilization, forgetting they're from Earth, picking up a signal from space, Mm -hmm. sending their super astronaut off into, into the depths of space to pick up the signal and find out is there life out there in the galaxy. And they, they find that there is, except that the life out there looks very unlike them, but it's human. And mm. so the colony's a black colony, a black Zionist colony that went off into space, mm. and the last surviving person is a young Bristolian, Shambalian girl. Excellent. And, and it's like, whoa, how come you're the, what's going on here? <laughs> yeah, so I was just sort of struck with how how do I enter into the story? I know what it is, but then it's like, 
is it a this? Is it a this? Is it a novel? Uh, it's a multi-platform transmedia. Yes, great, great idea, transmedia. But what are you going to start with? Yeah, you've got to start somewhere. Yeah. You've got to start somewhere. <laughs> um, and I've had a revelation. I'm so pleased. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm, I'm excited now. Thank uh, you. It's shades of your roots of Marvel comic sessions, I think, in there. Or yeah. into galactical adventures and sounds great. Well, I guess when I come to think of when I come to think about it, you know, it, I don't know how much work has been done around black kids and comics. And kids love comics, girls yes. and boys. Yes. But comics are serious now as well. They're a serious business. Now. Yeah. But they're also, I think, ways of positing alternatives to your social situation Mm -hmm. and sometimes as a kid you don't realize it that there is something profound in your choice of heroes and what you choose to look at you know and I guess for me the x-men were always the the most brilliant metaphor for race with Magneto and uh, Xavier as Malcolm X and Martin Luther King without mentioning race. So Mm -hmm. I enjoy sci-fi. I remember, actually, I've mentioned Mr. Leach, and he wasn't a fan of sci-fi. He thought, Mm. distraction. But I think what he missed was the potential for allegory that resets and reframes, allows us to ask different questions. And that's the sort of sci-fi I enjoy and Mm -hmm. That's the kind of stuff which I'm interested in, in terms of both dystopian and utopian visions, but not uto- dystopias for the sake of dystopias. And the last blue song posits something which is actually not the thrust of the story. It isn't a story which kind of applauds human separation, but it's a it's a, it's a sort of a tragedy of what happens if people give up on the the prospect of human reconciliation. So they go off and they think this isn't possible here. Let's go somewhere else right. into the stars. Yeah. But that's not, you know, that's not me applauding that. It's just playing with that idea if people yeah. became so disillusioned, you know. Mm. So yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it, how things all connect up. Um, they do. They do. Yeah. And do. I think my first radio play, Armor of Emmanuel, is there are qualities in that which I still find unique, even though it was my first play and and also which I still think oh gosh there's elements there that you need to keep reminding yourself around finding a voice and something which I think Alice Walker did in in The Colour Purple Mm -hmm. and um, I remember reading this in my first year as an undergrad Mm -hmm. and um, I couldn't really see what the fuss was first of all Okay. And I thought, yeah, well, what's, what's the big deal? It's a bit bleak, you know, it's a bit yeah. rough. Yeah. And then I thought about the voice and mm-hmm. I thought mm-hmm. of Alice Walker. Who's Alice Walker? And then I thought about Miss Seeley and how real she was and mm-hmm. how clear her voice was and right. how much she had come to life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's Alice Walker's ability to inhabit that person, to, to make this silenced woman breathe mm. and walk mm. and be loved by us readers and you know and once that light bulb moment came oh, thought, my gosh this is a this is a work of genius you know yeah, yeah. you know you you have these role models for those moments of creation which become kind of anchor points and reminders as to what one enjoys or are good principles to remember in literature and mm. I suppose that that I'm not really that interested in sort of hero narratives I'm, much more drawn to ordinary human experiences, people yeah. juggling with choice. Yes. The kind of our own abilities for, for weakness and everyday heroism. Mm, mm. Things that I guess I find much more 
interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And yeah. You, um, you tell many stories. I would uh, recommend anyone your book seasoned and, uh, and also to listen to Deacon. And is there anywhere else people could uh, find any of your other works? Yeah, I mean, I've, I'm working towards a new collection because it's mm. been a while and I've been accumulating quite different poetry since then. And also the pandemic has been just great, especially last year when it's been great for writing and just mm. okay. having that space. So it's been great, sorry. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it has meant that, um, to be honest, in terms of making a living, poetry is often a poorer cousin mm. of other forms. Right. And as much as I'd love to spend a day writing a poem and a commission comes in to, to write a play or yeah. another a drama or anything. Yeah. Well, so the pandemic has changed that and I've been writing a lot. But also uh, in terms of where else to do my work, I've got a few video poems that are out there, some on Ooh. Vimeo. Okay. And some on uh, YouTube. I'll yeah. share the links in the text for this podcast. Yeah. Tremendous. Edson, thank you so much. That's been really lovely to hear from you. And um, yeah, see you soon, I hope. See you soon. In the great outdoors. I will. <laughs> Take care. Take care. Thanks, Edson. Cheers. Poetry is a tool of empathy and compassion honesty, solidarity, as an act of love. Isn't that something? How much just a few carefully curated words can do? And Edson's word visceral is absolutely right for that physical-emotional impact when conveying well what he called the sharp end of experience. If you'd like to find some of Edson's work, I can highly recommend his poetry collection Seasoned, and Deacon, a series of three radio plays starring Don Warrington, is available on BBC Sounds. And there are quite a few YouTubes of Edson performing some of his poems too. I'd be thrilled if this conversation might prompt you to dig out or look up a favourite poem, if you have one. Or maybe look up one of the poets listed in the text, including Edson Burton. Let me know if you discover anything new that speaks to you and I'll happily pass it on. There's no better way of promoting art than personal recommendation. If you enjoyed this chat, please feel free to subscribe on your favourite podcast platform. And if you'd like to rate and review, that would be extra welcome, because that really helps the podcast reach new ears. And there are other great guests to listen to in the series. So until next time, enjoy keeping all your senses open and alive to whatever art makes your life better.